on Enmeshed, we discuss crimes and situations that may be disturbing for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Enmeshed, the show that reveals some of the most poisonous people come disguised as family. Enmeshers, and welcome to Enmeshed Unsolved, the podcast that explores family relationships and crime. I'm Amanda, and today Pam and I are discussing an unsolved murder case that has perplexed the city of Cincinnati, Ohio for almost 56 years. This is the murder of the Bricka family in September of 1966. Joining us today is special guest J.T. Townsend. JT is a three-time author, acclaimed public speaker, and armchair detective, aren't we all? He is also a lifelong resident of Cincinnati and was 12 years old when the Bricka case took the city by storm. JT's book, Queen City Gothic, is a regional true crime bestseller discussing Cincinnati's most infamous murder mysteries. Queen City Notorious is a follow-up book which covers Cincinnati's most sensational murder cases. And the book we will be discussing in today's episode is Summer's Almost Gone, published in 2018, which delves into the Bricka case specifically and is a fantastic read. If you haven't read the book, it is a must. Let's jump right into our interview with JT. Welcome, J.T. Townsend, to our show. It's an honor to have you here today. How are you doing, J.T.? Pam and Amanda, I am doing quite well here in the Queen City. Fantastic. So you're on the west side, correct? Uh, No, I do not live on the west side. Oh, you don't? I do not. Okay. Well, I live on the east side, um, and I know the case we're going to talk about today is on the west side, and... I love your quote of womb to tomb, Westsiders. Womb to tomb, yeah. Um, well, uh, we can talk about Cincinnati briefly, if, if you like. Um, sure. Yeah, I've lived here all my life. Uh, I live in a northern suburb of Wyoming, which borders Cincinnati. You know, I like to call Cincinnati a province, and I like to echo the words of Mark Twain, who memorably said, if the world were coming to an end, I would move to Cincinnati and spend 10 more glorious years there. So that kind of encapsulates Cincinnati, uh, definitely not progressive, uh, definitely behind the times. Um, certainly in the 1960s, the period we're talking about, and especially on the west side, Cincinnati was a bastion of Republican, German, Catholics. And we still have quite a, a large group of that demographic, but in the 60s, uh, certainly that was the most of the populace, and especially on the west side where people are born and die, (laughs) womb to tomb, as we say, Um, berm to I I agree. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, that's too funny. Can you use that? Yes, absolutely. uh, um, You know, I spent time on the west side, uh, 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 dated a girl over there for years when I was single. Um, people, People are born there, they live there, they die there, they keep their business there. If you ask someone what street they live on, 
they're more likely to tell you what parish they live in rather exactly. than the street. What high school did you go to is, is always the question. Yeah, well, that's a question in Cincinnati in general. But I would say, again, all the Cincinnati traits are typically magnified on the west side. I think it's certainly the best microcosm of what Cincinnati used to be when you're on the west side, most mm -hmm. definitely. Well, I lived on the east side, like I said, in Anderson. And I was born in 1967 but moved um, with my family to Cincinnati in 1969, so I grew up there. Um, I've lived in five states, and Cincinnati is my hometown. I miss the food. I don't miss the weather. In Cincinnati, if you don't like the weather, wait 10 minutes. It'll change. <laughs> There's nothing like the food, though. Nowhere. Oh, yes. Yes. I'm probably so, one of the only Cincinnati residents who's never eaten chili one time. What? I have never had chili here. Wow. Why not? Oh, well, we won't go into all that. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to mark you down as the one person who's never had Cincinnati chili. Uh, uh, that would be me. Okay. <laughs> well, um, we have family that grew up uh, in Walnut Hills, Walnut Hills High School, Hyde Park, so um, and family that lived in Delhi, they still do, so we're very familiar with this whole area. And as I said, my parents moved there, built a house in 1968-69, uh, moved there from another state, and we got the Inquirer in the Cincinnati Post every day. Yep. And, and after uh, learning about you and your book in this case, I am so surprised that they moved us there with all of this going on. The Bricka case, the Cincinnati Strangler, uh, I'm, I'm, I was just shocked to learn all of this about Cincinnati and that I had never known about it. So how did you become obsessed with this particular case? Well, it was, um, for me, it was the summer of 66. Um, it was the uh, transition between sixth grade and junior high. And um, I got a lot taller that summer. My voice got deeper. And... Uh, Suddenly, I became aware of girls, and I also became aware that we had a serial killer loose in the city. <laughs> um, and um, I was already getting into true crime. Um, in fourth grade, I became fascinated. Uh, I read the book uh, Ten Little Indians by Agatha Christie, uh, which is a fictional murder mystery where a bunch of people are invited to an island, and they start being murdered, and they realize the killer is one of them. So that kind of hooked me. And then uh, Jack the Ripper, Lizzie Borden, Lindbergh Baby uh, started becoming fascinated with that. And suddenly, here I am in Cincinnati. Uh, we're only two years out from the Boston Strangler, which was maybe the first serial killer that the media, national media, really covered. And suddenly, we had a serial killer as well. And, and I'm starting seventh grade. Uh, we've had four murders. And I'm, I'm not a month into seventh grade when the Bricka family is murdered on the west side between the fourth and fifth crimes of the Cincinnati Strangler. And let me tell you, these were just unusual times uh, in, in Cincinnati. Uh, the city was on lockdown because of the Strangler, and we had this beautiful family murdered. And uh, it was just the classic 
how could this happen here, you know, in exactly. beautiful, backward, provincial Cincinnati? This is something that we should see in New York or L.A., but, but not in Cincinnati. So it was really hard not to be uh, immersed in the events of the Bricker case and the Cincinnati Strangler. And the, um, the, the real climax was in October when uh, the fifth victim of the Strangler was killed, the most prominent victim of all of them, and they moved Halloween to the daytime. Can you believe that? Yes, I can. And, and here I am in seventh grade, and we were thinking, do seventh graders trick-or-treat? When they moved it to the daytime, every kid in my class, we're not trick-or-treating. We're not going to walk around in the daytime. And it was probably a bit of an overreach. The strangler was not attacking children, obviously. Right. But that just really shows you uh, uh, the fear that was the city was living in um, uh, with the Cincinnati Strangler. You know, we have the Brickas murdered on September 25th. This beautiful family stabbed to death in their home. The city's already on edge. And then two weeks later, the strangler, as if throwing down the gauntlet, kills um, Alice Hockhauser on her driveway in the Clifton Gaslight District, truly maybe the nicest neighborhood in the city of Cincinnati. And she was a uh, wife of a chief surgeon at Good Samaritan, mother of nine children, active in the arts and charities. And she's outside only because she's worried the strangler will kill her daughter. So oh, picking yeah. up her daughter from the hospital where she works. And that, the irony of that is astounding, that she was only outside at midnight in her bathrobe to drive her daughter home, and then she, the strangler takes her on her own driveway 40 feet from the safety of her back door where her husband and seven children are sleeping. The murder of Alice Hockhausler, close on the heels of the Bricka murders, that is when the fertilizer hit the fan, as we like to say. So the Cincinnati Strangler targeted middle-aged women, mainly, or elderly yeah. women. Okay. Um, of the uh, of the seven documented strangler attacks, and that is six murders and one near fatal attack, we have a age range of fifty-one. 281, um, uh, these were middle-aged uh, white women, um, but beyond that, there was no real discernible pattern in when this guy struck. We had, um, we had a woman murdered in a, uh, in a public park at 6 a.m. walking her dog. We had a woman murdered in her apartment uh, at 10 a.m., on a Monday, the only during the only period of time her husband was known to not be home, we had a, a woman murdered downtown in an elevator during rush hour traffic on a Friday morning with people bustling in and out of an apartment building. So, very bold killer. Um, certainly, a um, uh, what they would call a disorganized serial killer, a short stalk, um, a blow to the head. The victims are down. There's a rape strangulation. He leaves the victims where they are, doesn't try to cover his tracks, kind of a hit-and-run serial killer, if you will. Okay, and, and can you name this serial killer? 
Well, I can't name him officially. Okay. The, um, the seven strangulation attacks that we are talking about, along with a number of assaults that could well have been done by this perpetrator, those are officially unsolved. But in the middle of this reign of terror, we had the uh, Barbara Bowman murder, uh, the stabbing death of a 30-year-old woman in a taxi cab. This was a strange crime at 2 a.m. She'd taken a cab home from a bar. And the cab driver attacked her, and she was able to get out of the cab and try to run, and the cab driver mowed her down with the cab, jumped out, and stabbed her to death uh, in the gutter. And there had been a strangulation attempt in the back of the cab, and it eventually... Uh, a man named Postiolaski Jr. was arrested and eventually tried and convicted for the murder of Barbara Bowman. And uh, he was uh, sentenced to death, put on death row, and the strangulation stopped. Uh, wow. Postiolaski met the description that was going around of the strangler, a, a short, slightly built black man who may or may not have been driving a taxi. And Lasky certainly fit that profile. He had a lengthy record of assaults against women. And um, as I say, when he was finally incarcerated, the crime stopped. But he was never tried for any of the strangulation murders. So he was convicted of a stabbing death of a 30-year-old woman, which doesn't seem to fit the pattern. But I think most detectives investigating the strangler thought this was a strangler attack. Okay. So he, Postiolaski Jr. is the alleged Cincinnati strangler. He is the prime suspect. He is the best suspect. And I think he did most, if not all, of the strangler crimes. Interesting. Okay. Um, let me ask you this. Whenever I was working downtown, Procter & Gamble, Cincinnati School Board. Um, it's making me actually rethink my whole life now walking the streets of Cincinnati. <laughs> At that time, it was the 80s, though. Um, it was very divided. Like, I just knew, do not go to this area over the Rhine. Do not cross, like, these certain lines. Is it still that way? Oh, today? Yes. Well, a typical typical larger inner city, um, obviously you're going to have uh, more more crime, you know, within the city limits. Um, what was interesting about the Strangler, again, being a disorganized territorial serial killer, he only struck in four neighborhoods of the city, and they were quite different. Um, he took victims downtown. He took victims in Walnut Hills. Uh, he took victims in Clifton. Now, Clifton was a very nice neighborhood, and he took victims in Price Hill, which was a very lower-class neighborhood. So he's, he's killing women in Price Hill, which is lower middle class, kind of working class, and he took victims in Clifton, which was definitely upper class. So um, interesting the neighborhoods he moved in and out of. Walnut Hills at that time was quite a nice neighborhood. Um, not so much lately, but, but back then it was. And um, But if you look on a map, it's like a rectangle of those four neighborhoods. Hmm. And he never operated outside of, of those four neighborhoods of Cincinnati. 
Okay. And he is not a suspect in the Brickham murders. Okay. Yeah. It just Strangler and Brickham murders, thing. not connected. Okay. But coincided oh. with each other. Right. Which I can just imagine oh. the terror. My goodness. I mean, we've had, we've had three, we've had three Strangler murders and a near fatal attack. We have Barbara Bowman run down with a taxi cab and stabbed in, in August. In September, the Brickas are murdered. Just a brutal, brutally inexplicable crime of this beautiful family. And then Alice Hockhauser is killed on her driveway in October. Yeah. It, I, I can, the fear was palpable. Uh, we lived in a suburb and my mom got mace. People were getting guard dogs. Uh, and the Strangler wasn't even operating in, in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a dominated conversation everywhere you went. And, you know, serial killers back then uh, weren't even called serial killers. I don't think that term was coined until the 1970s with the son of Sam. Yeah. So we didn't really have a term for who this guy was. And, and there was quite a lot of debate. Were these crimes all related? And after the third crime, uh, after the third murder and fourth attack, police publicly stated, we have one killer at work here with these crimes. So that was a big step to take uh, when you couldn't even necessarily label it a serial killer since sure. we didn't use that term yet. So this is, this is really um, untrammeled ground in 1966. I mean, serial killers are quite a phenomenon today. Mm-hmm. In 1966, they were not. Yeah, I don't think that the FBI profiler was even a thing yet. Um, was nope. the FBI involved in this case? Um, actually, only in the fact that the Cincinnati police chief, Stanley Schrotel, was a good friend of J. Edgar Hoover, and evidence was sent in all the stranglings to the FBI lab due to the, the, the sheer uh, number of technicians they had working, the type of equipment they used. You know, they were obviously the most advanced uh, crime detection unit in the country at then, and, and their resources far outweighed what the Cincinnati police force had. So, yeah, all evidence was sent to the FBI for analysis. Okay. Um, in the Strangler case, uh, as as with the Brickett case. Mm-hmm. So back then, the FBI was a real go-to uh, crime investigational uh, unit. Um, not so much now, though. Right. Okay, so I want to mention your other books before we do detail the Brickett murders, um, since I think you've mentioned the Cincinnati Strangler and some of these. Queen City Gothic, which has 13 cold cases, Yes. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah. Queen City would, Notorious. Yes. Okay. And I, then I would love to. I'd love to briefly chat about those two books. Sure. If I could. Well, um, quick story about why Queen City Gothic was even written. Um, I got a cancer diagnosis in 2007, uh, colon cancer, and uh, it was a little bit touch and go. And I was getting ready for six months of chemotherapy and. My oncologist said, hey, do you have like a hobby or something that you could keep your mind occupied with during this time? And I was still working full time as well. And my wife suggested, hey, you've got all those 
cold case, Cincinnati cold case articles, you know, newspaper articles. Why don't you write that book you've been talking about? So I took six months of chemo and I wrote uh, I wrote my first draft of Queen City Gothic, and it was terrible. <laughs> the worst first draft ever because of chemo brain. So two years later, uh, two years of editing, and Queen City Gothic came out in 2009. Um, I had a, a I had about 20 cold cases, 25 cold cases I was looking at, and in the end, I picked the best 13. Um, I always have 13 chapters in my books <laughs> for some reason. So uh, Bricka was featured in that book, as was The Strangler, and uh, the book was very well received, and I was kind of on my way, and the cold case detectives I worked with said, hey, JT, great book there, but we didn't solve any of those. We looked like Keystone Cops. Could you write a book about cases we solved? And thus, Queen City Notorious was born. Uh, sensational cases where the killer was caught, um, excellent detection, interesting killers, uh, sensational trials, and even some executions. So in Queen City Notorious, rather than mystery, you have justice. And, and let me tell you, Pam, Queen City Gothic uh, sold like crazy. Queen City Notorious just kind of laid there. Hmm. And I came to realize that my demographic of true crime reader, they prefer mystery to justice. And I was surprised because Queen City Notorious had some fascinating killers. Um, uh, Edith Klump, for one, was a sensational case here. Um, we had Charles Teddy Hines in the late 30s. This guy would have been Ted Bundy. Yet they caught him after his first murder and kept his body count at one. Thank goodness. I mean, this guy would have been a, a serial killer without a doubt. So, again, uh, Queen City Gothic, Cold Case Mysteries, Queen City Notorious, solved cases. And well, um, I'll tell you, Matt and I prefer solved cases. So uh, you, I'm going you know, to read that I, book. <laughs> I, would really, I would really think that people would enjoy seeing how the, the the police detectives ran down these suspects and closed these cases. Um, and you've got some really interesting killers, mostly the, the killer-next-door type of crime, uh, not, not professional criminals by any means, and um, certainly some uh, spectacular trials um, sure. um, with some of these cases. So, But, but no, uh, from what I have found... People prefer the mystery to the justice, at least my demographic does. Okay. Well, you've got a book for everybody. Exactly. So <laughs> Gothic came out in 2009. Um, Notorious didn't come out until 2014. Uh, it takes me a while to crank one of these things out. That's yeah. for sure. And yeah. then in 2014, if I could segue, the door was opened for Summer's Almost Gone because the Bricka case is my obsession. I mean, it is my case. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, L.A. has the Black Dahlia. Chicago's got Valerie Percy. Cleveland's got Marilyn Shepard. London's got Jack the Ripper. Cincinnati has Bricka. I've been obsessed with this case since I was 12, since it happened. And I, I felt like I always knew I would write a book about it.
But here's what opened the door to the book. After years and years, decades, of trying to access the long-suppressed case file, and I tried to get in there for at least 10 years, and the sheriff at the time blocked any access to this file from anyone. And that certainly didn't help the case in terms of the rumors starting to sprout. What are they hiding in this file? What are the secrets from the case file? And if you've studied Bricka and, and have ever lived on the west side, boy, that rumor mill over there is something else. And from the moment this family was found murdered in their house, this case has spawned rumors like you wouldn't believe. I had more rumors in Bricka than the all 12 chapters, of other 12 chapters of Queen City Gothic combined. And I receive, I receive tips on a regular basis about Bricka. Uh, there's just something about the case, you know, the workaholic husband, the beautiful ex-airline stewardess wife, the stunningly captivating four-year-old child, and then the question, why was the child murdered? But why was that necessary? And then you start realizing, well, because the killer knew the family and the child could identify him. But um, finally, in November of 2014, I sat down at Hamilton County Sheriff's, and there was the brick of file right in front of me. Wow. What a day. Sure. And suddenly, right in front of me, are the crime scene photos. I have thought about this case for 45 years up to that point of my life, and suddenly I am seeing the crime scene photos, and it changed my entire concept of the case right then and there. So how did you get access to these photos? I... Um, that's an interesting story. I, you know, I, I tell you what, I'm not going to comment on that specifically. Okay. Um, it, it did involve some some legal maneuvers. Um, but once they realized who I was and they looked at my other two books and realized that I was a serious Cincinnati true crime historian, that's when they gave way. And it also helped that there was a different sheriff heading up that department. The previous sheriff, Simon Lease, wasn't going to let anybody in that case file. Uh, Jim Neal let me in. I'm forever grateful to him. Without my access, uh, Pam, to that to that file, there's no there's no book. There's no Summers Almost Gone without that file access. Um, Ninety percent of the information in Summers Almost Gone had never been made public before. So that day, in getting into that file opened the door for the book, Summer's Almost Gone. Well, I'm glad he gave you access. I do remember Simon Lee, and he was definitely a tough character. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I won't comment further on, on, on that. Okay. So what happened? Um, this family of three, how, how could this have happened? It's, it is obsessive because... There's just no good motive that I can see. You know, I have. I'm, I'm trying to encapsulate this crime. Um, I'll, I'll quote my own. I'll quote my own book. It was an unbelievable crime, hideous, unexpected, 
baffling. A crime destined to become the most notorious and obsessive cold case in Cincinnati history. Um, on that long ago day in September 1966, we were horrified by the blaring brick of murder headlines. Jerry, his pretty wife Linda, and a young daughter Debbie were found stabbed to death in their home in the city's west side neighborhood. Striking between the fourth and fifth slayings of the Cincinnati Strangler, the brick of killer plunged a city already on edge into the abyss. Wow. So we have Gerald. Correct. Who was 28? 28. Linda, uh, engineer, 20. engineer at Monsanto. Okay. Linda, 23, and Debbie, 4. Now, they were not from Cincinnati, correct? They moved into the city? None of them were. Uh, Jerry was originally from San Francisco. Linda from Chicago. Uh, very good families here. Upper middle class backgrounds. Jerry's father was a doctor. Linda's father was a, owned a very successful business in Chicago. Um, they lived in nice neighborhoods, um, but they came to Cincinnati after their marriage uh, when Jerry was transferred by Monsanto in Seattle to Cincinnati. Okay, but, and uh, Linda, Linda had been a flight attendant. Yes, and I tell you, Pam, it's interesting when, when I think about the initial coverage after the bodies were found. No, none of the articles failed to mention that she was a former airline stewardess. And this is 19, this is the 1960s. This was the coffee, tea, or me kind of thing. The perception of airline stewardesses being maybe loose women, mm -hmm. so to speak, uh, kind of thing. And, you know, she was only an airline stewardess for six months. And she was terminated because she got pregnant by Jerry. And uh, um, she was two and a half months pregnant when they were married. And she'd only known Jerry for four months when they got married. And she was pregnant, and Jerry insisted on doing the right thing. So this young couple, uh, who barely knew each other, plunged into marriage in, in November of 1961. And it turned out to be a troubled marriage indeed. It doesn't look that way from the pictures. They're such beautiful people. It seems like a good match. It, you know, it 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 really it really does. Um, when you look at the wedding photos and the other pictures I have in the book, uh, you would think it was a good match. Uh, it was really anything but, and that was probably the biggest surprise for me that came out of the file was that um, they actually separated in March of 1966, you know, about six months before the murders, Linda went to Florida to stay with her grandparents and took Debbie. Jerry stayed in Cincinnati, and they had a, a two-month separation. And it really seemed like this, this marriage was about to end. And they decided to reconcile, and uh, Linda came back to Cincinnati, and it uh, set the stage for murder most foul. Wow. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so this case has been cold for about 56 years. Yes. And don't tell us who you think did it yet, but you think that you have the perpetrator in mind. Sure, and okay. I'd be happy to set the stage leading okay. to this crime. Yes. If, if, you, if you would like. Um, so the city's already trembling. We're in the thrall of the Cincinnati Strangler. 
He's he's attacked. He's he's attacked four women, killed killed three, and he's possibly stabbed a young woman in a taxi cab as well. And it is uh, it is early September, um, and Linda does something unusual the week of the murder. You know, when you're looking at a case like this, you you got to do your victimology. What what is the victims? What are the victims doing? What did they do differently? Suddenly, what was different about the period leading up to the murders? And in the week of the murders, uh, we're talking Monday, September 19th, and the murders happened on Sunday, the 25th. Um, what happened? What was different? And I'll tell you what was different. On Monday, the week before her murder, Linda Bricker went to work at the Glenway Animal Hospital as a part-time receptionist uh, for Dr. Fred Leininger. And she worked three days that week, um, and her family was murdered on Sunday the 25th. And, she previously um, knew this doctor, though, correct? Uh, she had been going to that clinic uh, since they moved here in 1963. Uh, we, we can't talk about Linda Bricker without pointing out that way ahead of her time, this woman was an animal rights activist before people even knew what it was. This woman was obsessed with animals, with rescuing animals, with caring for animals, with working with animals. And uh, just to backtrack briefly, uh, in April and May of 1966, she went to the Shrine Circus uh, at, um, at the um, Cincinnati Gardens. It was there all month. And people saw her working behind the scenes with animal trainers, uh, actually feeding bears, grooming monkeys. Uh, she was seen uh, riding an elephant. And she is interacting with all these traveling um, animal carnival-type people who, who have set up at, uh, at the um, Shrine Circus with their animals. And she spent uh, an inordinate amount of time there um, and Jerry was working. He was a workaholic, so Debbie was basically staying with babysitters all this time. Okay. And um, certainly uh, the seamy, uh, seedy world of carnival sideshow animals uh, was looked at very closely in the investigation because there was a lot of disreputable characters at this circus that she was interacting with. And people were starting to ask in the investigation, how did she get special access behind the scenes to these animals? She was the only non-circus person to get that. What did she do to gain that access? So uh, if we talk about Linda Bricka, we talk about her beauty, we talk about being a former airline stewardess and, and the daughter of a fairly wealthy man, but what really defined her was her obsession with animals. And she apparently had wanted to work at a vet's office forever and had been pestering Fred Leininger to work there. And finally, the week before the murders, she takes a part-time job there. And in my mind, I keep thinking, if she doesn't go to work at that veterinary clinic, do these murders even happen? Hmm. A little background on Fred. 
he was married with five children, right? So he's a family man at the time. Married with five children, a longtime owner of the Glenway Animal Hospital, which he opened in um, 1958. A well-known member of the community, um, had quite a thriving practice there in terms of clients. Um, uh, again, was a, a fairly wealthy, a well-connected uh, married man with five young children, married his high school sweetheart. Uh, they lived in a very nice house uh, out in the suburbs. Um, and this guy appeared to have um, everything going his way. And then... Uh, then there's his association with Linda Bricka. And we should probably just address this now, I think. Okay. I'm telling you, within days of the discovery of the Bricka family murdered, laying there in their own blood, within days the rumors were flying along the Glenway corridor of the west side that Linda Bricka was having an affair with Dr. Fred Leininger and that is what led to her family being murdered. And that's a rumor that never stopped. Mm. I interviewed three of the first responders to that crime scene. And, and yes, the crime scene was not secured. All sorts of unnecessary personnel wandered through. There were 30 to 40 people inside this house where the three victims were found that night. And they didn't lock it down quickly. But I interviewed three people that are still alive that were there inside that crime scene. And you can just imagine the family's been dead for two days. The smell must have been ungodly in that house. You have all these people wandering through. But all three of these men told me that with the bodies still lying there, Already detectives and first responders were talking about Linda Bricka's alleged affair with the vet on Glenway. So from the get-go, from jump, the motive for this crime seemed to be an adulterous affair, and that's a rumor that never stopped. It has but, dominated this case from the very beginning. But why kill her family? Why kill her family? I understand Debbie called him Uncle Fred. Well, let's speculate on that. Okay. Three weeks before the murder, Linda and Jerry and Debbie are out in San Francisco for the marriage of Jerry's sister. Um, Linda told several people in San Francisco that her period was late, and she felt like she could be pregnant. Mm. And she talked about it in kind of a, a happy way, but from, from everything I have deduced about what was going on with this couple at that time, I don't think Jerry and Linda were having sex. So, Well, not with each other. Not with each other. <laughs> so the key question is, is, was Linda pregnant, and was she pregnant by uh, a... West Side veterinarian, and Fred Leininger is just one of eight veterinarians that were interviewed in connection with this crime. Linda Bricker seemed to like to collect veterinarians, you know, like some people might might follow professional athletes. And um, apparently her own father had told her, if you want to start your own veterinary clinic and hire your own vets, I will bankroll that for you. So, 
again, these are these are rumors that started from Jump Street almost the moment the bodies were found, and this rumor mill never stopped spinning that the motive behind this crime was an adulterous affair, uh, uh, an obsession that took a wrong turn into rage or or a possible I, I think we have two scenarios here with the affair that the killer, Liminger or the killer, was so obsessed with Linda that when she tried to break off the affair, he killed them all. The other side of the coin is Linda was pressuring this man, saying she was pregnant by him, and whoever this killer was, and, and our killer was an alpha male. This guy was a this, this guy was not some street criminal. This guy was a professional man. Uh, my profile said that he was a professional man. He was married. He was high income. And perhaps the killer didn't want his comfortable little life to end because of his dalliance with Linda Bricka. Yes. So either the killer was obsessed with Linda Bricka or the killer wanted to break this thing off and Linda Bricka wouldn't. Was she pregnant? I can hear, Pam, I can hear you wondering that. Autopsy said no. Oh. But here again, the rumor mill is spinning. And of all the vets that were interviewed, and there were eight of them, several of them were loosely linked to a rumor suggesting that West Side veterinarians in 1966 were doing backdoor abortions. Really? And there were also rumors that several of these vets were giving drugs to a satanic cult so they could sacrifice animals but without hurting them. In other words, anesthetizing them before the animals were killed. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it, on its face? It does. Mm -hmm. When I first heard the rumor about the satanic cult, I laughed. <sighs> but here's the thing. Satanic cults were a big deal in eastern Indiana and southwestern Ohio in the 60s. And there's a number of crimes that have been linked to these cults. And I have interviewed two people that claim to know who these people were. And um, they didn't seem like they were lying to me at the time. I have a lot of information on this. So... We've got the vets possibly doing abortions, possibly uh, aiding in the um, in the sacrificial uh, rites of animals. Um, these satanic cults also like to molest children. I interviewed a woman who claimed to be molested by them, and I'm going to tell you, she was either the Meryl Streep of actresses, or she literally was reliving this event right in front of me when I interviewed her. And Fred Leininger certainly seems to be at the center of a lot of these rumors. And he is certainly the man who appears to be linked to Linda Bricka. Um, let's look at her week with Fred Leininger really quick. Monday, she goes to work for him. Tuesday, she works there. Wednesday, she works there until 9 o'clock at night. She doesn't come home until 11 that night, and Jerry is pissed. She comes home drunk. 
makes up some story about that someone brought a cat in, and she and Leininger tried to save it, and they couldn't, and she was so distraught they had a drink. And Jerry apparently threatened that night to go over there and beat Leininger up. So she works Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That's it. She works no more at Glenway Animal Hospital. On Thursday, Thursday evening, she makes an emergency call to Fred Leininger's answering service to have him call her. This, is, this was marked urgent. On Friday, she is seen at an archery range with Fred Leininger, and one of Fred's friends is there. And he said Leininger seemed very uncomfortable with her presence there. And when the friend left, Linda and Fred Leininger were alone at the secluded archery range. On Saturday, they are seen together in a car by two separate witnesses. So on Sunday, they're murdered. So every day that week, Linda has an interaction with Fred Leininger, be it, be it working, be it calling him, be it being seen with him. So we definitely have a connection between Fred Leininger, and he is the prime suspect, and Linda, the, the entire week leading up to the murders. I would like to chime in. So in Summer's Almost Gone, which is a wonderful book, by the way, um, there was mention of a Dr. Redder who had a short interaction with Linda Bricka while she was yeah. working at, at the veterinary hospital. Um, so he has some type of criminal background himself. Do you know what that consists of? I do. Um, Herman Rader was a close friend of Fred Leininger. He was his relief vet. Um, in 1955, uh, Rader, within a period of two days, attempted to stab someone, and the next day successfully stabbed someone. And he was immediately committed to a psychiatric hospital, and the case notes say he was a raving lunatic when they brought him in. And he spent over a year in a mental hospital, uh, came out, apparently cured, and kind of rode Fred Leininger's coattails. Uh, Fred gave him work. Fred did this. Fred did that. This Raider guy was a real odd duck. Um, I've seen this guy's psychiatric case file. He was definitely bent. And that's just one vet connected to Leininger, who's strange. There was also Dr. Stanley Keller. He himself had spent three stints in a psychiatric ward in 1965, the year before the murders. And his interview was also flagged. Radier's interview was flagged. There's 16 interviews out of the um, 300 in the case file that were flagged. Uh, Leininger's obviously was. Raiders was flagged. Dr. Stanley Keller's interview was flagged. Uh, again, something about his demeanor during the interview raised red flags with the police. He was evasive. And then there's one other, and he was a close friend of Fred Leininger as well. Now, there's one other close friend of Fred Leininger whose interview was also flagged. And, Pam, I'm going to test your memory here. That individual would be kitty show host, Glenn Skipper-Ryle. I have met him in person. 
<laughs> have you? Yes. My dad any was thoughts, a Any thoughts on him? Um, you know, I was a child, so all I can remember, of course, I saw him on TV, was he was a little spooky. He just seemed like he was a smoker and drinker and definitely a, a spooky is the only word I can come up with. Let's talk about him for a second. Okay. He was a close personal friend of Fred Leininger. I've interviewed four or five people that knew Leininger and worked with him. Glenn Ryle and Fred Leininger were tight. Now, I was on his show. I met him the year after the murders. I was on his TV show. And it was kind of fun. We were there for a birthday. And I thought during the commercials that he would talk to us kids. No. He sat in a corner during the commercials and just stared. And this guy, to me, was creepy to the tenth power. Hmm. And I have done a lot of investigation of Glenn Ryle. And this guy was a married man who was certainly not a fanatic about his wedding vows. This guy was a major player in terms of affairs. Hmm. And makes you wonder if Fred Leininger was his wingman or something. Um, I just interviewed a, a, a friend of my sister's uh, earlier in the year, and, and uh, I had dropped a book off to her, and she said, oh, by the way, I had an interaction with Glenn Ryle. Uh, I interviewed him for the newspaper in 1971, and um, ten seconds into the interview, he started hitting on me and hmm. said he wanted to fly me out to his ranch in Montana. And she's like, well, aren't you married? Yeah, you know, kind of thing. So so here we've got three close friends of Fred Leininger, uh, Dr. Herman Rader, who liked to stab people in his past. We've got Stanley Keller, who, was, who has recently been in psychiatric wards. And we have Glenn Ryle, this bigger-than-life TV personality with a dark side. And Glenn Ryle was former military, former special forces, trained to kill. And Glenn Ryle was a big man. And let me segue here very quickly. The day I saw the crime scene photos for the first time in November of 2014, up to that point, I had always assumed we were talking about a single killer. And I saw Jerry Bricka laying stabbed to death on his bedroom floor. And I saw pictures of him on a coroner's slab, naked. This guy was built. This guy was about 5'9", a well-muscled 190 pounds, 180. He looked like a college wrestler. And I looked at these pictures of him, and I stared at the detective across from me, and I said, look at the size of this guy. How's one guy with a carving knife going to handle this guy? Not to mention the wife and the child. I immediately started to think multiple killers based on Jerry Bricka's physical size. There's no way a guy could have herded them up to the bedroom with a carving knife because the carving knife from the Bricka home was missing and it did fit the wounds. He, he'd have a he would definitely have defended himself and his family. So already I'm thinking second killer with a gun. Right. Because not only are you handling 
all three family members, but they have two extremely aggressive, barky, bitey dogs. And these dogs hated strange men. But yet, what if one of the killers was familiar with the dogs? The dogs were no factor. And if I can continue on with this, the initial, the initial question of the investigation, was this a random, strange, a random slaying by a stranger, or did the killer know the family? And he, the killer or killers definitely knew the Brickas. There was no forced entry. There was no signs of a struggle. There was no screaming. Uh, uh, no, uh, you know, the family apparently was cowed somehow, possibly tied up. The dogs were no factor at all, no protective factor in any way, shape, or form. And the killer or killers spent a long time in the house afterwards, not robbing the house, but in my mind, looking for incriminating information, diary, love letters, things like that. Mm. Because this was, without question, a personal cause homicide. And that is where the killer or killers is emotionally entangled with one or more of the victims. You know, this was not a mob hit. This was not a serial killer. Um, you know, it has the characteristics of a lust murder, but I don't think rape was the object here. And um, it certainly was not a robbery homicide. So we're talking personal cause homicide here with the one or more of the killers emotionally entangled with one or more of the victims. And I'm sure Linda Bricker was the target. So without question, whoever killed the Bricker family knew them, and Debbie had to die. Debbie was a four-year-old who everyone I've interviewed that knew her said talked like she was ten. This was a precocious child who could identify people. She could have identified Fred Leininger. And what four-year-old kid could not have identified Glenn Ryle from his show? Oh, such a shame. Now, so, you mentioned no forced entry. So I recall reading that the neighbor, I believe Helen, who lived behind the Bricka family and was able to see into their home, she noticed around 9 p.m. on the evening of the murders that she could see the television, which was very unusual because she typically couldn't see that when looking out, out the window. So she then realized the only way she would be able to see the television was if the back door was open. Correct. So do you feel that the back door was unlocked and that that was the the access point for the killers? Absolutely. Both doors were unlocked. This is 1966. People didn't lock their doors, though they certainly did after this crime. Uh, pinpointing Jerry Bricka's movements in the moments before the crime, he ran out to the UDF, United Dairy Farmers, to get some milk and orange juice at a quarter of nine. Um, Linda's at home with Debbie, and the world premiere of Bridge on the River Kwai is showing on television, and their television was found tuned to that channel. So they were watching this movie. Uh, 60 million people in the country watched that movie that night. But Jerry heads out to UDF. He comes home right about 9 and is 
brief, has a brief conversation with his across-the-street neighbor while he's putting his garbage cans out. And this is a little bit after 9 o'clock. She watches him trudge back into the garage. Into the house he goes. Now, he has time to take off his shoes. But I suspect killer or killers enter that house shortly after 9. And Helen Zambatis, I think her name was, she looks out her window, and she probably just missed seeing the killers enter because the door was open. That's why she could see the TV screen. So that's one of those things, if she had looked just a little sooner, she might have got a view of one or more people entering the house at that point. And I think the killers did make entry shortly after 9. The killings probably started before 9.30. You know, I'm not sure what the point of this visit was. Were they trying to scare the family? Uh, were they trying to see if Linda Bricker was pregnant? You know, were they were they wanting to take her out? Um, uh, there's there's all sorts of speculation at this point. Was murder the initial plan, or did something happen after the killer gained entry to cause the crime? Which sounds unexpected because Linda was in her nightgown, correct? Yeah, and I she wrote about this. She's in. She's got a house coat on, but boy, she's got a skimpy negligee on. And um, if you look at the, the crime scene photos, I believe Jerry was stabbed first, mostly in the back, and his throat was cut, and a pair of socks was stuffed in his mouth, I think, to stop him from his death rattle, so to speak, after the carotid artery was cut. And a piece of tape used to secure those socks is still one of our best pieces of evidence that was found on his face. But Linda is stabbed on the bed, uh, all from the front. So she's facing down her killer as she's being stabbed. And then she is thrown on top of Jerry and... I looked at the crime scene photos initially. I was stunned. Her breasts were exposed, which you immediately think sex crime. But I think it was more of a function of her negligee was so skimpy, and she was thrown on top of him. Her hair was kind of fanned out, and I think her breasts became dislodged from this low-cut negligee, which, again, gave it the appearance of a sex crime with the nudity. But... Um, but no, I don't think she was raped that night. Um, we do know that she had intercourse the day before uh, with a man who was not Jerry. And how do you uh, know it wasn't Jerry? Well, we got three pieces of physical evidence that comprise the current DNA profile. And that would be hair found clutched in Linda Bricka's hand, Marlboro cigarette butts, because no one in that house smoked, and semen taken from Linda Bricka. And there was some controversy about this. Was she raped, or did she merely have recent intercourse? And the coroner initially said she'd been raped. And the lead investigator immediately corrected that and said she had recent sexual intercourse. And from what I could see on the crime scene photos, her panties were
were in place. But she was wearing a negligee. So she is stabbed uh, mostly from the front, six in the chest, uh, stabbed in the face a couple times. Um, the corner of her mouth was stabbed, kind of like a bizarre clown kind of effect. She's thrown on top of Jerry. Uh, they're in the corner between the bed and the wall. Debbie is in the next room. And think about this for a moment. Think of three killers, two men and a woman, a woman who's holding Debbie in her bedroom. And are the brickers being threatened? We'll kill your daughter unless you, you tell me this, this, or this. Well, they've killed the brickers. And, and then they go next door, and Debbie appeared to have been dragged from underneath the bed. She's in a bathrobe. Uh, one red knee sock is on the bed, and one she is still wearing. This tells me that at 9 o'clock, Jerry put her to bed because he was the one that typically tucked her in. And at that point, killer or killers who've been observing the family through the back window of the TV room, Jerry goes upstairs, and I think they make entry at that point. Jerry hears a disturbance downstairs and comes back down. So at some point, the family is herded upstairs. Now, here's where I'm thinking. One guy with a carving knife is hurting, this, is hurting uh, all three of them upstairs? Really? That doesn't work for me. Jerry would have attacked the guy. So I think Jerry comes back down. Um, um, at some point, they're, they're brought up to the bedroom. Jerry appeared to have been beaten. He had facial contusions. But, but to get it back to Debbie, so they go next door, and Debbie is dragged out from under the bed. She is stabbed four times. The knife goes all the way through her body. Um, but it's almost clinical based on the placement of the wounds. Whatever passion there was was spent in the master bedroom in the killing of the two adults. This is merely the removal of a witness. And I've seen this before in multiple um, homicides where you have victims killed in a rage followed by a victim killed out of fear. And that's exactly what we have here. We have rage against Jerry and Linda, and we have fear of this child and what she can say. So uh, she is killed to eliminate a witness. Um, killer spent a, an inordinate amount of time in the house searching it for things. Uh, the Monday morning inquire, which hit that driveway about 2 a.m., is missing. Was it used to wrap evidence? A carving knife from the house that was often kept out is missing. So think of it in terms of this. I like to say that um, the killer always takes something from the scene and leaves something of himself at the scene. Well, the killer took the carving knife, but what did he leave? What piece of evidence cannot be reconciled with anything in that house? And that is the piece of tape on Jerry Bricka's face that was used to gag him. And that tape came back as 
unusual width medical or veterinary tape, and it could not be matched to anything in that house. So the carving knife is, is taken by the killer. The killer leaves the piece of tape. How about that? Very interesting. And where are the dogs at this time? The dogs were found locked in the basement TV room. This is a tri-level house. So I believe the killers made entry through that lower-level TV room and eventually take the family up into the bedroom. I think Debbie is already in the bedroom since Jerry was putting her to bed. And they move up to the to the third level of the bedrooms, and that's where the killing starts of the adults. And I can't imagine being a four-year-old child and hearing this going on in the next bedroom. No. It's just, it's just staggering. I mean, the killing of the adults was bad enough. But the killing of Debbie Bricka just incensed everyone. It just drove this case to another level. Why did they kill a four-year-old child? And the answer is very simple. She could have identified one or more of the killers. I'd like to circle back to, you mentioned a potential woman involved. Um, so in Summer's Almost Gone, there was mention of a woman who had interrupted a wedding party that was occurring, I think, a few houses down. Um, she was looking for um, transportation. Do you feel like she may be involved somehow, or do you feel like that was more of a coincidence? That is a good question and, and good detail to point out. They were actually, she was actually slightly down the street and around the corner. So she's probably almost a quarter of a mile from the murder scene. I've thought about that woman. She appeared to be frightened. Um, she wasn't that far away from the crime scene, but she would have had to walk up the street and turn the corner. Um, but um, I'm beginning to think that's a coincidence. But l let me talk briefly about the thing that isn't a coincidence. Um, at 10.30, the night of the murders, Larry Foppy, the proprietor of the high-low beverage depot, is getting ready to close up for the night. And he is uh, a quarter mile away from our crime scene. And who comes rushing in to his establishment uh, but Fred Leininger? And he appears to be distraught. He appears to be stressed out. He's wearing an unusual sport coat that doesn't match his pants. He's keeping his left hand jammed in his pocket. And Larry Foff knows him, knows him well. He, Fred, Fred is a regular customer. Now, this is 1030 on the night of the murders. And he says, I have to use the phone. I have a medical emergency. Wow. And Fop observes him, and Lionheart's hands are shaking, and he can't even get the coins to go into the payphone initially. And finally, he um, he makes a call, and Fop said that he could hear a busy signal, but Lionheart told him he could not reach the party. He tried him twice, and then Lionheart looks at Fop and just rushes out into the rainy night. And Larry Fobb's statement, his witness statement, is one of the key statements of the entire 
investigation. It places Fred Leininger very close to the crime scene at the time of the crime, acting totally out of character. And Larry Flop said Leininger had been a regular customer, and he never, ever, ever again came into the high-low deli after that night. That's very incriminating. And and here's here's a, an interesting codicil to that. If Leiner has to make a phone call that night in an emergency, his own veterinary clinic is right there on Glenway as well. Both both Fred Leininger and Larry Fopp are business owners on Glenway. Why not go to your own veterinary clinic and use the phone there? Well, here's why. Uh, Leininger had live-in caretakers there. And they were there, and they would have seen him come in and use the phone. Because I've asked myself, dude, if you just were involved in a murder, why are you exposing yourself to another witness to make a phone call when you could go to your own clinic? So very strange. Uh, Fop said he'd never seen him acting so weird. Um, and think about this. What are the odds that Fred Leininger would have a medical emergency, and he's a vet, by the way, on a Sunday night less than a quarter mile from where a brutal triple homicide just occurred where he was involved with the female victim. What are the chances he'd have a medical emergency? Well, we could speculate about this. Maybe Fred didn't want the murder to go down. Perhaps his bolting out into the night and trying to make this call, was was he trying to help the Bricka family? Did he just see something happen that blew his mind? Did he take someone with him to back him up uh, because he was having a problem with Jerry and Linda and this guy uh, went a little beyond what they had planned? I mean, think about that. Why would he... Why would he make that call that night? And then dovetailing with this, at 11.20, we have two witnesses leaving Western Bowl drive right by the Bricker house, and they see three people getting into a car right in front of the Bricker house. There are no other cars parked on the street. There are no people out. This is 11.30 on a rainy Sunday night. No one has a reason to be out. And there are three people in front of the Bricka house. One guy thought it was three men. The other guy was with his wife, and they were right behind each other in these cars. One of them thought that one of the three people was a woman. And they were getting into a car right in front of a house where a brutal triple homicide had just gone down. So there again, the possibility of multiple killers is there. You know, I'm kind of an Occam's razor kind of guy. You know, the simplest explanation is the best. I mean, conspiracies are really tough. You know, three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. Okay. So if we've got a conspiracy here, boy, that, that takes Bricka up into the next stratosphere, that we could have a three-person conspiracy and no one ever talked. So right, because if you look at all those witness statements, lining or showing up at the high-low, the people leaving the bowling alley seeing the three people, 
Um, it's almost like the murder went down. Was Leininger making a call to get someone to help him do cleanup? Does does a group of people come back to the house after the murder and do the cleanup, so to speak? In other words, trying to get rid of incriminating evidence. But they missed that piece of tape on Jerry's face because his body was underneath Linda's at that point. It does not sound premeditated. Like, you know, I've gone back and forth on that. Really? They... Fred Leyinger, I believe, went to that house that night with one or two people. What he was trying to accomplish that night, I'm not certain. Has Linda told him she is pregnant and she's going she's gonna to completely blow the whistle on his cushy little married life? Fred Leyinger is not going to let that happen, you know. Um, his Linda said, hey, you said you were going to leave your wife and we were going to start this vet clinic. I'm ready to leave Jerry. What's your problem? Maybe I should speak to your wife. You, you can see any number of scenarios here that would push Fred Leininger into a corner. This is a guy who's got a wealthy existence, a comfortable family life. You know, he's got his little side piece here. He wants everything to stay the same. But something's changing, and the end result is murder. Okay, JT, if, if they found a, some hair in her hand and semen inside of her, um, I know DNA was not what it is today, but can these things be tested today? Can, can this be solved more than circumstantial evidence? Great question. I'm going to tell you guys something that... Um, I haven't told a lot of people. Um, I was in a BRICA meeting last month at county. Um, I was the only non-law enforcement person invited. I, I thought it was just going to be two prosecutors and two detectives and me. Uh, there were 15 people at this meeting. But that's BRICA, okay? Um, there was a lot of non-essential people that wanted to sit in just because it was BRICA. And um, uh, county prosecutor... Joe Dieters chaired this meeting, and the question you just asked was the total agenda of the meeting. What is the state of the physical evidence? Uh, what is our capability of retesting this evidence using the latest techniques, including PCA, which will preserve the sample because you copy your evidence? What are the chances we could get a good profile and then hop on the Ancestry websites and look for a second cousin, and bingo, the perpetrators dropped. That is the playbook to solve cold cases today. And I've been keeping track. Uh, there's one or two cold cases solved every month now. I just saw a 1959 murder of an eight-year-old girl solved. And it was a high school boy that lived six doors down from her, and he died in 1985. Mm -hmm. But the DNA said without doubt that this this guy was her killer. And they they closed the case, and they went to the this guy's family and told him he was the killer. So that's the um, that's the game plan with Bricka to do something like that. Here's the problem. Uh, they did an initial DNA profile in, in 2002, 
with the, with the cigarettes, the hair, and the semen, got a very weak sample. Now, what do I mean by weak? Let's look at a strong sample in the O.J. Simpson trial. You know, uh, the, the killer uh, who killed Nicole and Ron uh, uh, left this DNA, and there's a one in 70 million chance that it's not him. In other words, this DNA sample matches one in 70 million people, and it matches Mr. Simpson. Bingo. How conclusive is that? You know what we have for Bricka on that sample? What's one that? in 25, one in 30. Oh, wow. That's terrible odds in the DNA game. This profile could match one in 30 people. That's not going to that's not going to eliminate suspects and narrow your search at all. So the idea is to get a better profile and to get that big number. You know, one in one billion. You can't find anyone else on the planet with this with this match. But the constraint is this: the evidence was not well preserved, and I am seriously, from what I heard in this meeting wondering if they're going to be able to get a decent sample, even with more modern techniques. Because the last time they did it was 2002. It's 20 years later. DNA extraction techniques have improved light years in the last 20 years. I mean, they can do incredible things. But you've got to at least have some decently preserved evidence. Time and moisture will ravage your evidence. And apparently in both cases, time and moisture has really done a number on the key pieces of evidence. So at this point, I just got an email from the county prosecutor today. They are moving ahead, but this looks like an uphill fight solely based on the viability of the evidence to yield a good sample with a really good ratio of one to one million. So I wish I could be more optimistic at this mm -hmm. point, um, but it's kind of a wait and see. And everything I just told you here is ongoing. I just was in the meeting a month ago. And I'm happy to say that meeting came about because of my book. Fantastic. You Keep have, going. You should, see, you should have seen the people in this meeting. Several detectives came in there who'd never seen the BRICA file. But everybody knows BRICA. And... It was interesting to me to see the file going around and seeing these people looking at the crime scene photos and the evidence photos for the first time, you know. Uh, I, I like to call them rubberneckers. I mean, there were 15 people in this meeting, and eight or nine of them just sat there. They just wanted to be there because it was Bricka. Um, I would have run the meeting a bit differently if it had been my meeting. But... Um, so that's kind of where it stands today on BRICA, um, trying to move forward, but the viability of the physical evidence could turn out to be a prime constraint. Are there any suspects still alive? Well, we lost Dr. Rader last fall. Um, Leininger and his wife died in a suicide pact, though she didn't die right away, 2004. Um, uh, another of the vets just died this year. Um, on my top ten list, 
I'm aware of one that is probably still alive. But seriously, though, the way this cold case playbook goes now, oh, it's great if they're alive, like you're like the Golden State Killer. But if the killer's dead, they're going to move ahead. They're going to identify the killer. They're going to tell the killer's family, your father, your brother, your uncle, your son, killed these people. And here's the proof. Have a nice day. So uh, some people say, well, you're just chasing ghosts here with Bricka. It doesn't matter. Doesn't there is matter. no statute of limitations on murder. No. Not at all. So let's let's circle back around also to who found their bodies. Well, that's an interesting uh, an interesting thought. Um, uh, they were murdered Sunday night. Um, Jerry Bricka missed his flight for his business trip Monday morning. Uh, Linda Bricka had an appointment to have her dogs groomed on Monday. She missed her appointment. Uh, uh, Debbie was not taken to nursery school. Uh, People start wondering, uh, what's going on? The garbage cans are still out. Newspapers are piling up, except that one that's missing. And finally, Tuesday night, 48 hours later, uh, next-door neighbor Richard Meyer and, and across-the-street neighbor Richard Jansen investigate. And Meyer pushes open the front door and calls out, Lynn, are you there? And 48 hours of death in that house comes wafting out. And they knew instantly that there were dead people in that house. And the police were immediately called. And uh, they found the bodies that night. But as you, as you ladies well know, the first 48 hours are key to solving any murder. And... They, they were hamstrung from the beginning. The first 48 hours are gone. How can you pin down a witness statement 48 hours later? I mean, what did you eat for dinner uh, three days ago? Do you remember? No. So they start canvassing the neighborhood Tuesday night. Do you remember anything from Sunday night? Well, that's a tough one. Consider if the family had been found Sunday night, the night, let's just say there had been a disturbance and uh, some people were seen fleeing the house and the bodies were discovered Sunday night. Wow, now we've got something. Now we've got witnesses with good memories. You know, we've got a, we've got a fresh crime scene. We've got the first 48 hours to work. So the fact that the first 48 hours were already gone, I think it put this investigation behind the eight ball immediately and and you just can't get that back you know we had some good witness statements but think how many better witness statements we would have had if those statements were given sunday night as opposed to tuesday wednesday thursday and on into the week because people's people's memories it just starts to recede into the rearview mirror of your mind how can you remember something you may have seen three or four nights ago Right. But I'll tell you this. Um, I had occasion to drive around on a Sunday night uh, a year or two ago. I was leaving my brother's house. And it was, a, it was a rainy Sunday night about 1130. There was nobody out anywhere 
And yet, on our Sunday night, three people are seen entering a car in front of a house where a triple homicide just went down. That's our killers. You can't tell me that was some random people who just happened to be visiting someone on a Sunday night and parked in front of the Bricka house. Right. You know, those were, those were our perpetrators. But our two witnesses are leaving their bowling league. They don't know a murder's gone down. Um, how closely do you glance at someone when you're driving at night and you see someone getting into a car as you drive by? You just kind of glance. Exactly. You know, you're not going to... You're not going to really notice that much. So, and the Brickers were friendly with all of their neighbors. Um, there was reasonably no... so. Okay. I'm not sure why it took 48 hours for somebody to finally investigate. Um, Jerry always took the garbage cans in right away. The newspapers were always taken in. None of that is happening. Finally, Tuesday night, they can hear the dogs howling inside. And here's another fascinating little facet of the case where the dogs drugged and that would speak right to the veterinarian wouldn't it um, I spoke with the animal handler he said they were dehydrated hungry and in shock I said were they drugged he said possibly but there was never any testing done on the dogs Linda had an agreement with her parents if that anything would happen to her, that the parents would take the dogs. And the parents um, were on vacation. They notified them Tuesday night. They came to Cincinnati Wednesday morning. They were interviewed, and they took the dogs. And um, no testing was done on the animals. And if those dogs were drugged, that really points a finger at Fred Leininger. When Fred Leininger was questioned... Do you have any information of that interrogation, I suppose? Oh, do I ever. Do I ever. He was interviewed on Wednesday after the bodies were, to, were found merely because he was Linda Bricka's employer of record. So the day after the bodies were found, they went to Monsanto and interviewed Jerry's boss and coworkers. So they interviewed Leininger who was Linda's part-time boss on Wednesday after the bodies were discovered Tuesday night. And this interview shot up some red flags. Uh, he did not ask questions about what happened. Uh, he didn't ask any questions about the murder. He didn't express any remorse over the loss of his employee at all. And, and meanwhile, the detectives are hearing all these rumors about his possible involvement with Linda Bricka. So they flagged him for another in-depth interview. And on um, uh, it took a while, but finally on Saturday, October 8th, and this crime happened September 25th, on October 8th, uh, the lead homicide investigator went to Leininger's clinic with his right-hand man, and they had a 45-minute taped interview with Fred Leininger. And during that interview, his demeanor changed rapidly during the interview, and he became evasive about his relationship with Linda Bricka. And they started watching his body language and his demeanor, and they could see that he was becoming a little agitated by the questions. 
And when they finally got around to saying, what exactly was the nature of your relationship with Linda Bricka? And he shut down the interview right then. He said, I've got, I told you I had another appointment. Um, I've got to get to it. Um, that's all the questions I'm going to answer for now. So the detectives left, and they're like, okay, here's our guy. You know, we got to get ready for the third interview. It was already too late. Uh, Leininger lawyered up that night. When they returned to the clinic on Monday after the Saturday interview, the lawyer was there. He shut down any further interviews, and they never spoke on the record with Fred Leininger again. Though I will tell you this. They kept police surveillance on Leininger for three years after the crime. They'd pick him up in the morning when he went to work. If he went to lunch, they'd have someone in plain clothes at a table. Uh, they followed him home. And my understanding is, from interviewing um, the uh, Joan Jansen, who lived across the street, she heard from County that if Leininger was out at a restaurant at or at a bar by himself, and this is years after the crime, that Hamilton County deputies would show up in the parking lot, and when Leininger would come out, they would accost him. And this, this could be 10 years after the crime and say, wow, Doc, you know, can you believe that Bricka case? How could somebody do that to that little girl? So they started um, rousting him, which apparently is legal. Um, as long as you don't step over the line. And apparently he had to stand there and take it. So, um, yeah, he's been a fine suspect all along. Okay. Are, are any of his children still there, West Side? None of them. Okay. But they're all alive, and there has been uh, – none of them will cooperate in any way, shape, or form in this investigation. So there won't be any DNA from them or anything like that. Okay. And, of course, Monsanto is, you know, questionable in itself. Um, anything happen with that question questioning? Well, people, a lot of people like that, um, um, that Monsanto angle. Um, you know, was he a whistleblower? You know, they make all these weird products and everything. Right. And... That, that theory goes nowhere. Okay. Um, Jerry was actually a process engineer, so he had nothing to do with developing the products. He had nothing to do with Agent Orange or um, or all these other nasty chemicals Monsanto does. They they made styrofoam and styrene at the plant he worked at. Okay. So and what about the theory of? Um, I guess there were two other flight attendants killed in Seattle that Linda knew, and yep. maybe there was a drug conspiracy going on there? Well, that one doesn't go anywhere either. Okay. Um, uh, when Linda Bricka, during the six months she was a flight attendant in Seattle, uh, the two flight attendants, um, Lisa Wick and Linda Trumbull, that were attacked in Seattle in the summer of 66, um, when Linda Bricka was a stewardess in 1961, uh, those two women were high school freshmen in Oregon. They were not stewardesses. There is no connection at all between those women and Linda Bricka. 
Okay. And uh, um, one of those women was killed, and one of them was beaten but survived. Um, uh, serial killer Ted Bundy is often looked at as a suspect in that crime. Hmm. But there is no connection whatsoever between those young girls who, again, at the time Linda was a stewardess, they were high school freshmen in Oregon. So I'm surprised people that um, – there are people that look at that, but it's a very simple investigation to see that there's no possible connection that, that she knew those two women. It just okay. – it doesn't go anywhere. And they didn't have any family living in Cincinnati? No. Jerry actually had a cousin that lived in Cincinnati. Okay. That's about it. Okay. I'm just wondering if there was any inside information, if Linda might have, you know, confessed to anybody, had a friend, or she had to use babysitters a lot. If she did. There was no, okay. Um, well, it's all, it's all in the book. Um, you know, she didn't have any close girlfriends. Okay. At all. And she seemed to really like veterinarians. Um, I've interviewed um, uh, their primary babysitter several times, and it's all in the book. Okay. Um, um, Linda made some cryptic comments to her, you know, if a man ever calls, don't tell him where I am, you know, or other things, but but nothing specific. Okay. Um, so, um, no, uh, we just don't have, we don't have enough insight from Linda Bricka. Okay. Um, you know, was she pregnant? Well, the autopsy says no. You know, did she get a backdoor abortion from a vet and threaten to expose them? Did she find out Leininger was giving drugs to a group of um, of um, satanic cult people? Linda would never have stood for the killing of animals. I have to think, you know, if I'm summing up here, the only thing different that happened in Linda Bricka's life the week before the murders, was going to work at the Glenway Animal Hospital. And I have to believe that something happened there, something she learned. She met Herman Rader there on Wednesday, something Rader might have said to her, something that flagged something. And then she makes this urgent call to Leininger on Thursday night and then they're seen together on Friday, and Leininger's friend said Leininger is extremely uncomfortable. She just shows up at this archery range. It's kind of a, a guy's only hangout. It's really isolated. And there she is suddenly. And, and Leininger's friend said he obviously didn't want her there, but when the friend left, they were alone. And plus the Wednesday night, she's two hours late from work, and she comes home drunk. Jerry was so mad, he he threatened that the neighbors heard him that uh, where he was. He threatened to beat up Liner, and you know, four days later, he's dead. So, to me, something happened when she started to work at the clinic, and if she hadn't gone to work at the clinic that week, maybe we're not even talking about this. Could be. You have to consider that possibility. Right. Well, it's a tragic yet fascinating story. And as a social justice seeker, as you are, um, I'm, I'm in agreement with you with the suspect, but boy, would I like to see this solved. Oh, who wouldn't? 
Um, it's going to come down to the DNA, obviously. But mm-hmm. I encourage, um, I like to encourage anybody that loves baffling, juicy cold cases, um, get on my website www.jttownsend.com and and buy a copy of uh, of Summer's Almost Gone and immerse yourself in the most notorious cold case in Cincinnati history and and welcome welcome yourself to your new obsession because <laughs> it'll, okay. it'll do it i've i've spent most of my life obsessed with this case so they can get any any book on your website and on amazon all three of my books can be bought on jttownsend.com queen city gothic queen city notorious summer's almost gone there are links to buy all of them on the website sometimes we run some specials um it's a it's a heck of a book. It's 420 pages, 150 photographs. Um, I like a lot of detail. Most true crime people do. I heartily recommend this book. Okay. If you I read too. only one true crime book this year, then read this one too. The, the photos are worth the price of admission. Um, I, thank you for saying that. Um, I'm very very uh, obsessed with having lots of imagery in my books and I put the pictures where you need them what do these people look like oh there they are where did this happen oh there's the house uh, what were the headlines oh there's a headline you know okay. I don't want you cage into the middle of a book looking at 15 photos you know I think I have 140 images in this book true crime <laughs> people want pictures Absolutely. And, and my books are true crime aficionado friendly because these are the kind of true crime books I like to read. And what else do you do in your in your free time? Are you a public speaker? I well, so nice of you to ask. Um, I'm getting ready to go into my uh, fall um, my fall session. Um, I give various programs around the city on. Cincinnati crimes and national crimes. I'm probably the foremost Midwestern expert on the JFK assassination, Jack the Ripper, Lizzie Borden. I'm one of the only writers to ever tour the Lindbergh house where the baby was stolen. I've spent two nights in a Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast where the murders happened. Um, and I teach classes at, uh, at University of Cincinnati as well. So, uh, um, and I always do a PowerPoint when I give a lecture because you've got to have the imagery. So uh, um, I'm doing a lot of JFK assassination this fall, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, I, I okay. solved that one. I oh, yeah? that one in an hour. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. All um, right. But, but um, I don't know which one of it was you that mentioned to me, Pam or Amanda, Lindbergh baby. Yes. That might be an excellent, excellent subject for a future podcast. I hope you will join us again for your insights on the Lindbergh baby. Um, Once I started reading what you have to say, it's just Did you read my, um, I have an article on my website. Yes. Did you read it? Yes. Yes. And well, I want to come back on and share the story. And we've got an interesting can. prime. We've got an interesting prime suspect there, don't we? And it's not Bruno Richard Hauptman. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was actually talking about it um, on a walk the other day to a few people, and 
and it it just gets you intrigued again. Like, yeah, definitely could have been an inside job. And after looking at your pictures, we want to know more. You so, know, my my wife was with me. We're touring the house. I'm I'm like literally about to jump out of my skin. We're inside the Lindbergh Mansion in Hopewell, New Jersey, where the crime of the century happened. And the house looks big from the outside. On the inside, it's a very small scale. Sound travels. And it, the house is way out in the middle of nowhere. It drove my um, GPS nuts. <laughs> and this was 2013. Imagine in, imagine in 1932 sure. um, how remote this house was and we're walking there, and my wife whispers to me, inside job. And I'm like, yeah. So your wife so, is right on board with you? Right on board. There were five nice. people in the house that night, Lindbergh, his wife, and three servants. Okay. The truth of this case, the truth of the Lindbergh baby, lies with those five people. But that's a great story for another time. Sure. And um, is your health is your health okay? You sound, you know, your voice is oh, yeah. oh, you sound yeah. great. Been, uh, okay. I've been cancer free for for 15 years now. Um, well, congratulations. Wow. Yeah. Right. But but seriously, I don't know if I would have become JT Townsend without the cancer. Right. You you might say I turned to crime to fight cancer. Nice. <laughs> Life okay. does have mysterious ways of working. So hey, next time we're in Cincinnati, maybe. Um, We'll hit you up and meet you. Come to one of your lectures or have lunch or something. Or, or lunch. And, yeah. And I, I, I meet people for lunch to talk true crime all the time. So oh, I would love God. that. Well, thank you two very thank much. Thank you. Appreciate and, it. Uh, let, let, let's stay in touch on this. And okay. By all means, uh, Lindbergh would be yes. a great one. Um, okay. The Maryland Shepherd murder in Cleveland. I mean, I could go on and on. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you, wife, day. for giving us time, too, and we'll talk to you later. Thank Will you. do. Thanks so All much. All right. Thanks, Stacey. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You can find us at Enmeshed underscore True Crime Podcast on Instagram or Enmeshed True Crime Podcast on Facebook and let us know what you think. You can also get a behind-the-scenes look at the show and chat with us about any of the cases you've heard here or share case suggestions. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to keep up with Enmeshed, and join us every Monday for fresh takes on stale relationships. Enmeshed is an Oh No production.